turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we're going to look at one verse. So you know what that means? Uh, that means you're probably not going to get out early. Ain't that the rule, right? If, if it's a short passage, long sermon, long passage, short sermon. Uh, we'll see how consistent we are with that. This is like most of the Sermon on the Mount, a passage we will be familiar with. Um, but what does it actually mean might be new material. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verse 13. If you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Matthew the evangelist, quoting our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask as always that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that we would be transformed by the gospel as revealed in your word for, for the uh, good of our community. May we today fall in greater love with you so we can love and serve our neighbors better. Transform us, use us, be glorified in us. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In almost a single day, the Western world as we know it changed. In fact, had these events not taken place, the world as we know it today would look significantly different. Going all the way back to the fourth century, the Western world changed dramatically. We are in many ways in the world in which we live in today because of what happened on that fateful day. And what happened was... Uh, Constantine the Great united the western and eastern parts of the Roman Empire and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, we can talk all day about the goods and bads and how, how his understanding of the gospel and all that stuff sort of is. But in the Roman world where there was an official religion that shaped everything about that culture, it was significant that a persecuted minority for 300 years stemming from a carpenter's kid's uh, uh, preaching and that he was crucified under the Roman thumb and tyranny is now become, 300 years later, the official religion of, Christian, of, of the Roman Empire. Thus, as a result, the Roman Empire went under dramatic reforms. Now, again, I don't agree with everything that Constantine the Great did, but we can see in policy, in the direction of the Roman Empire, that things did immediately begin to change. Can I highlight three areas of policy that changed as a result of Constantine's Christian faith and the growing influence of Christianity in the Roman Empire? One was an emphasis on life. Roman husbands had the right to reject any child born to them. If a child was born and they decided they didn't want that child because it was a boy or a girl, because it was handicapped or unwanted or whatever excuse they may have, they had the legal right to abandon that child out in the woods. It's called exposure. And that child would certainly die by a wild beast or by the elements. There was no legal recourse. Wives had no authority. Mothers had no authority to stand against it. Christians from the beginning vehemently opposed this practice on the grounds that it was an act of infanticide and more specifically filicide, that is a parent murdering their own children. However, beginning with Constantine, 
This long fight against against this evil took a vital turn. Consider also reform regarding violence in the Roman Empire. If you know anything about ancient Rome, uh, you know it was a violent place. Romans in particular loved the arena. They were important not just as social events, but they were politically important. And one of their main purposes was to keep citizens and the people of Rome entertained. But they were entertained through grotesque violence acts. In fact, many people who were executed by the state were executed as an act of entertainment in the arena. Gladiators were slaves who were called by the system to murder one another for the sake of entertainment. People would gamble on what gladiator would win and they would have their favorite gladiator. They would, they would make sort of celebrities until they themselves were were died in the gladiatorial realm. However, under Constantine, the gladiatorial games came under new scrutiny. Most Caesars used the games for political purposes, but under Constantine, he did not, and made it publicly clear, he did not care for them. It is particularly noteworthy that in the new capital city of Constantinople, there was no arena where these things could take place. Added to that, he changed the way executions took place. He outlawed both crucifixion for what should be obvious reasons, um, and he outlawed executions we talked about last week by wild beasts. These were not to be acts of entertainments, but rather justice. Finally, under Constantine, there became new rights for women. Under Roman Empire, women had little to no rights under traditional Roman law. But beginning with Constantine, all of that changed. Husbands used to have unlimited authority even over the lives of their own wives. They had unlimited authority that, that if, if, if they didn't want to be monogamous, they didn't have to be. They could be open with multiple relationships and, and the wives had no authority. They could not even sue for divorce. They had no property rights even with inheritance. Nothing. But under Constantine. That began to change. In fact, I think this is significant. Constantine is the first Roman emperor to outlaw rape. Now, why did all of this happen? Now, I don't agree with everything Constantine did. And and we have the advantage of 2,000 years of Christian history to understand he could have done much, much, much more. But one cannot deny that when the gospel took precedence in the Roman Empire, Rome itself began to change. The reason is simple. You are the salt of the earth. Now, this is a proverb that I have no doubt that we are familiar with. We've, we've heard it. We've read it. We've, we've articulated it. But it is one of those proverbs that we are familiar with that if we were to pause and ask ourselves, what in the world does it mean to be salt? We're kind of clueless. Think about it. For us, salt has two primary purposes. One, you put it on food. The other, you put it on your sidewalk and on the main major roads, there are nice storms, right? So, so uh, this, this past week, we, we had some ice out there and it, it closed schools, some businesses and whatnot. We here at the church, we laid out ice in anticipation of, of gathering for Wednesday and anyone who came on Tuesday. This, this, is, this is what we do with salt. Well, if we want to understand what Jesus means here about us being the salt of the earth, we need to understand what salt was used for in the ancient world. And for the sake of time, although I could give you about 11, let me give you two 
primary uses of salt as it applies and is implied in this text. The first, like us, is that they use salt to improve. That is, salt was used for flavor and seasoning. Now, I am a salt critic. I get quite upset when I've cooked a big dinner because I love to cook. I've really grown to love to cook. And the first thing my wife does when, when she has all the food that I've prepared and have sweat over that hot stove. I'm, Mom used to complain about, I've slaved over this hot stove. Now I'm going to do it, right? And, and we had to listen to her. So you're going to listen to me complain. Um, and the first thing my wife does is say, where's the salt? Let me just tell you, tell you if you're one of those people, you're a terrible human being who probably own. You're probably a cat owner. Right? Right. You're like, oh, no. Right? That, that, I'm a cat owner that eats too much salt. Cats are evil. They're influencing you too much. You need to repent and believe the gospel. Here, here's, my, here's my thing. I'm a ketchup guy. But ketchup is not the same as salt. Ketchup is a dip. So, so, so if, if, you, if you're going to Super Bowl party next week, right, and you're like, hey, I'll bring the chips, and someone said, I'll bring the salsa, what you're not going to think is, well, I'm offended. Do you not like my chips? You're not going to think that at all. You're not going to think that at all. Let me tell you why. When I cook my fried potatoes, I season it. So when you eat my fried potatoes and you think, you know what, you're a bad cook, I need to season it, I take that personally. Now, if you fix me a medium rare ribeye steak and I dip it in ketchup, you're not offended. You didn't cook it in ketchup. You cooked it in something else to the glory of God. I'm getting hungry, right? So salt to me is quite offensive. Let me tell you, there are two things in this world you can put salt on. I'll give you permission, right? Thus says Kyle. Okay, here it is. Fresh garden tomatoes, right? I mean, like fresh garden tomatoes. If, 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 if you've never had a fresh garden tomato, welcome to the South, you city folk Yankee, right? I mean, it is, there is nothing better in this world than a fresh garden tomato. I mean, fresh garden tomatoes are good. Put a little bit of salt on it, it's gooder, right? To the glory of God. The other is like it, and that is fresh watermelon in the summertime. Put a little bit of salt on that, that's good. That's good. But you see, you don't cook either one of those. You're not insulting anybody. It's a flavor enhancer, right? Those of you who are looking at me like you don't put salt on watermelon, you're a cat owner, aren't you, right? You know, you're, you're the one putting salt on your mac and cheese and green beans. I know who you are. I know who you are. You're, you're a terrible, just terrible human being. Anyways, but they did the same thing in the ancient world. In fact, Job 6 verse 6 says, Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? And so you see that, that salt was used as a flavor enhancer in their world as it is in ours. So they use salt to improve. They also use salt to preserve, to preserve. Uh, some time ago, a few months ago, I did the grocery shopping, um, and I got some Alfredo sauce. My son loves uh, um, um, uh, fettuccine Alfredo. To be clear, he's a very picky eater. He likes cheap fettuccine Alfredo you can cook at home in five minutes. What he doesn't like is the delicious fettuccine Alfredo covered in Parmesan cheese at the Olive Garden. Right? I don't understand it. I don't get it. He's his mother's son. Anyways, so, so I went to get that Alfredo jar, right? I got it. I bought it. I did what every man does. 
It's there. It's, uh, I can afford it. I bought it. And that's it. I did no other investigation. Apparently, someone had opened the jar and put it back on the shelf. And I didn't know any of this. Now, I got lectured by my wife. Ladies, I don't need a lecture. I took notes, okay? I get it. You can... And you can know whether or not it's good or... Okay, I, I get that, all right? I've been lectured. So I go to fix this, this uh, uh, fettuccine Alfredo, and I open the thing. Don't think anything of it. I'm rocking to, to, to hip-hop, whatever it is. And, and I open that thing, and I pour it into the pan, and the smell just hit me. Verily I say unto thee, we had to open up the windows. Now, we have a variety of ways to preserve food. You go out and kill a deer, and, and, and you're, you're going to get that meat. What are you going to do? You're going to put it in the freezer. You, you, you go to the grocery store. Many of the things you're going to get, like produce, is going to go in the refrigerator. You're, now, I check my Alfredo uh, uh, th- jars to make sure they, they've been preserved, that they are sealed. We have a number of ways to preserve our food. The ancient world didn't have Alfredo jars that were tight, and you can poke the thing in the middle. They didn't have any of that. What they did have was salt. They would smother food and, and, and other items with, with salt to, in order to preserve it for, so that it would last longer. Food that had not been properly salted would be unsafe to consume. Now, all of this is, is good and well, but we need to see that salt in the ancient world was not as reliable as salt is in ours. The way we get our salt, it goes through refiners and everything else, it's not mixed with other minerals. Thus, the salt you have in, in, in your drawer today will be fined uh, however long, you know, months later, right? It's going to taste like salt. It's going to be salt uh, because of the way we, we refine it. In Jesus' time and among his uh, uh, peers, their salt came from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the saltiest body of water in the world. It's so salty that you can float in its water without any help. You don't need a pool noodle to float. You just do this. There's plenty of pictures on on, on the telly. There's there's plenty of video on, on the YouTube. You can watch people just doing this, right? And it's because of, of the extreme salt level in that 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 lake. Well, so they would get it from there, but as a result, the salt is mixing with other minerals, which makes the salt less efficient. And when you have such salt, it becomes useless. And the only thing it is good for is throwing outside and trampling it underfoot. And that is what Jesus is describing here. Salt, when it is good, is very beneficial to us. But salt that has been diluted is useless only to be trampled upon. And in that context, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Well, let's just go home. Right? We got it. You understand the proverb now, right? Let me see if I can apply this in two ways. The first is salty Christians influence. Salty Christians influence. My parents, some time ago, sometime last year, went to go visit my brother over in Kansas. Now, I view the Midwest, Midwest as Southerners who just ain't cool enough to be in the big boy club, right? Like, like they're close to being one of us, but they ain't one of us, right? And, you know, they're, 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 there's good country boys over there. However, and they went over to a restaurant, and mom and dad said, I'd like a sweet tea. And the waitress said, what is sweet tea? We have tea. 
Now, in the South, you could order tea and it comes back sweet. Among the Yanks, you order sweet tea or you just order tea and it's awful. Now, I'm not a tea drinker, so, 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 but, but they, they, they were just appalled by that. Now, let's just say you're in that situation. You order a tea and there's no sugar in it. The first thing you're, you're going to do is, 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 is you're going to be taken aback by it, right? I mean, you, you're thinking it's going to be nice southern sweet tea with 10 pounds of, of sugar in it. But when you first drink it, you think this, this, is, this is atrocious and you're immediately going to grab the sweet and low there at, at, at your table. Now, in this scenario, sweet and low recovers what has been lost. What's been lost is flavor. What's been lost is the sugar, which is the only reason you drink the tea to begin with. You're not doing it for your health, for sure. So, too, followers of Jesus recover the goodness of God's creation in a world that has gone bad. We see this throughout history. We understand that sin leads to madness. It leads to corruption, injustice, violence, and chaos. The gospel comes and recovers beauty and the good of creation and the purposes of God. Can I just prove this to you real quick? Y'all know my wife's an uh, art-crazy lady. And so uh, we, we got all this sort of stuff. Modern art is terrible. Christian art, classical Christian art is good. Like, here's my judgment of art. If I could do it by an accident... It ain't good arts. It's not good art. But if it requires real talent and skill, which magnifies the beauty of creation and, and, and the gifts of humanity, it's good arts. When Christianity dominated the West, what you got was beautiful art with vibrant colors, excellent texture and, and, and quality and all that sort of stuff. Where you can look at an art and say, that is art. That is beautiful. That is good. That reflects the true. You look at modern art that is in a post-Christian society. What it is you have is chaos, uncertainty, and subjective reasoning. This is why when I go to a hotel, I like to, whoever would listen to me, make up a meaning of an art piece that I made up and watch them as they are mesmerized by all the hidden meanings I, I uncovered. It's a fun game I love to play. I love to do it. We'll play it sometime here, okay? I'll show you. I'd absolutely enjoy it. What's happened is that when Christianity be, uh, 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 gains influence, you recover the good being that it has been lost. Therefore, in that context, it ought to be that our marriages should be healthier than our non-believing neighbors. We could say thing about our families and our, and our work habits, our budgets, our schedules, and our priorities should be straight because salt has influence. Salty Christians influence. I gave the reference to Constantine the Great, we could look at other examples of this throughout history. William Carey is, is considered the father of the modern mission movement. He went to India, and there he was immediately appalled by what he saw culturally. And through the work of his missionary endeavor, he was able to change many things, including the slave trade, including the practice of infanticide by exposing unwanted or handicapped children, including where elderly people were abandoned out by the lake where they too would be exposed because they were too great of a burden upon their families. He saw all these practices and he said, if the gospel will get a grip of this community, all these things would end. I want to recover the good for what is a clear evil. Closer to the home, 
Many of you all may recall several years ago, we talked about the great revival here in Kentucky in 1800 and 1801. To give you a few numbers, the Elkhorn Baptist Association in one year alone baptized well over 1,100 people. One association, which would involve Franklin County. In a three-year period, the Salem Baptist Association baptized over 2,000 members. In a two- to three-year period, the Kentucky Baptist planted 113 churches, adding 10,000 members in a matter of just three years. This means that in three years, the number of churches in Kentucky, Baptist churches alone, doubled and the number of members tripled. It was an incredible, incredible revival we experienced here in Kentucky. But it isn't just the numbers that are significant. Those numbers brought about a number of significant moral uh, and social changes. One of them would have been the decline of alcohol and domestic abuse. Remember, at this time, you don't have police force and everything else. What you have is the influence of faith. And as a result of people repenting of their sins, homes got to be safer places. So everyday life improved. One significant issue was that of emancipation. Baptists were actively involved in emancipation before the revival, but afterwards the work towards abolition, uh, abolishing slavery really took root. One man by the name of David Barrow was a Baptist abolitionist here in Kentucky. He started his own Baptist association called the Licking Locust Association Friends of Humanity. That's a long name for a business card. The term Friends of Humanity was a common term for abolitionists. I believe Wilbur Wilberforce used that same term for himself. The association ended when many of its members ended up uh, migrating to Illinois. But there, you may recognize one of the members of this Baptist association that fought against slavery in the state of Kentucky. His name was Thomas. He was the father of the 16th president of the United States. Thomas Lincoln moved to Illinois after being heavily influenced by Baptists following the 1800 Great Revival. You see, when the gospel takes a hold of the heart, when the gospel takes a hold of the home, the community, it will improve. Where there is strife, we become peacemakers. Where there is sorrow, we comfort. Where there is hatred, we love. Where there is injustice, we speak truth. Where there is evil, we bring good. But it isn't just that salty Christians influence Here's something that must undergird that ministry. Salty Christians must be salty. Go back to the text. Notice what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, if it's lost its taste, what good is it really? We could talk about all the uses of salt that we can imagine. Again, there's at least 11 we can come up with, with, with the ancient world alone. But what good is salt if it has lost its saltiness, a real threat in the ancient world? This passage is as much as a warning to us as it is anything else. The work of the church is vital to a local community and its health as well as its members. But what good is the church if it does not preserve the gospel? It is only good for being trampled out being thrown out rather and being trampled on. What are some of the main areas I see that threaten the saltiness of Christians and by extension the local church? Can I give you three and we're done? The first is theological heresy. The greatest threat to the early church, turn to the book of Acts if if, if you want to in your own time, the greatest threat to the early church was not that people were trying to kill them. 
torture them, abuse them, or, or anything else. The greatest threat to the early church was that people would get the gospel wrong. Read Acts. Their primary concern was not that people didn't like them, but that people may wrongly understand the good news of Jesus. Because if we get the gospel wrong, we cease to be salt. To undermine the gospel is to undermine the church. It is to undermine its mission. It is to undermine its function. This is why Scripture repeatedly warns about the threat of, of heresy. In this sense, we must be Christians who preserve the whole gospel. What we believe determines who we are, what we do, and what we seek to accomplish. You can trace the decline of Christianity in the West, not, not just to secular philosophy, but to theological liberalism. The father of modern theological liberalism, a man by the name Friedrich Schleiermacher, this will be on your test later. I have his systematic theology in my office. You will not get through it, I promise. It is tough to get through. We had to read it in my PhD class. It is tough to get through. His main argument is, is this. Christianity has traditionally been about the objective. There is Christ outside of me. I must believe in him. I must believe in the historic events of the resurrection. I must believe in what the Bible says. Notice that it is objective. That the truth of the gospel is outside of me. What is in me is the problem. The answer to me is outside of me. That is what we call alien righteousness. Christ must come into the system. He, must, he is outside of me. Schleiermacher came and he, he flipped it because this was the trajectory of society. He said, no, truth is subjective. I must find it within myself. The Bible becomes true when it corresponds to my subjective feelings. Any of this sound familiar? We're doing this today on every subject around the world. And when you do that, you will compromise the gospel because it's no, no longer about what Christ has done. It's how I feel about who I think Jesus is. And thus you have surrendered the gospel and you've lost your saltiness. Second way we can lose our saltiness is cultural compromise. Since its conception, theological liberalism has been seduced into compromising the truth of, of Scripture so that people will like us more. This is the real temptation. But the problem is, in an effort to be relevant, you prove yourself to be irrelevant. Let me ask you, when you were a teenager, did your parents or any other adult in your life try too hard to be cool? You, you ever, you remember, you remember that? I have no doubt someone in your life, probably your dad, right? So, so like a, I saw a mom joking one day. She had four kids, right, all different ages. And she was saying, no one prepared me this as, as a mom. The youngest calls her mama. The next youngest calls her mommy. The next youngest calls her mom. The oldest calls her bruh, right? <laughs> you know? So I, I think that's hilarious, right? Because that, that's my son. Bruh, all the time. So to be a cool dad, I like to say bruh all the time, right? Because I know it annoys him, right? Every dad does this, right? My, I remember my dad trying to listen to my music. Very the same thee. It didn't work. It didn't work, right? And he wanted to be cool, right? You ever see that, the, the new youth guy trying to be relevant with the youths, right? He's like, yo, 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 how, how are my homies doing? Well, I don't know, whatever it is. And, and everyone's like, <laughs> you know, his kids are in the back, you know, uh, please, Lord, come quickly, right? Right? Notice that in an effort to be relevant, you prove you are perpetually irrelevant. 
The gospel is transcendent in that you don't need to update it. It is already sufficient for where we are as a society. You think the gospel is insufficient for the mess that we're in right now? It's rooted in a God of both creation and redemption. It can handle the mess of our society. It's handled messier societies before. We don't need to pursue relevance. The gospel is already relevant. We live in a broken world made up of broken people. We worship a resurrected Savior who reconciles us to God and transforms us to become like Him. Everything else is details. Thirdly, we can lose our saltiness through political seduction. For most conservative evangelicals, this is the real risk we are facing. You can believe in historic resurrection of Jesus. That's good. You can believe that we shouldn't compromise the truth of Scripture against a pagan society. That is excellence. We will just as quickly wave a certain flag, promote a certain party, because we will prioritize the kingdom of men ahead of the kingdom of God. And as a result, we lose our saltiness. Salvation will not arrive on Air Force One. And the problems of our society run deeper than what can be resolved by legislation. Many of you all know the work I do at the Capitol, and, and part of that is I go to campaign events. And I went to a gubernatorial campaign event, doesn't matter who it was, just to be there to pray, to encourage, and to build relationships. And I went, and, and this person was talking about the drug epidemic in our state. It is a serious problem across the country. It's a serious problem here in Kentucky and certainly here in Frankfurt. This is a major, major issue that deserves our attention, no doubt. And I remember that this, this gubernatorial candidate, nice person, is going through, we can do this, we can do that. we got to solve this, we got to solve that. And I remember one guy said, how can legislation fix that problem? And the problem they were pointing at was fatherlessness, broken homes, and everything else. How can legislation fix those problems? It can't. You cannot legislate that men be good men, that men be good fathers, men be good husbands. You can't legislate that. You can try, but you can't do it. You know what will? The gospel of Jesus will. Where you see the gospel take root, you see broken homes find healing because God, God is a God of reconciliation. Do not be seduced by political pandering. Let the gospel do the work. If we put the same effort into promoting Christ as we do our preferred party or politician, Christianity would be far better off right now. You are the salt of the earth. Be encouraged by that. And please note the context by which Jesus states this. We just spent four weeks looking at the Beatitudes. He's saying that those who are truly salty... You will live the blessed life. But it isn't just you that are the beneficiaries of that blessing. It's the people in your life, and by extension, your community. You are the salt of the earth. Hold fast to Christ. Be anchored in His saving gospel. And watch what Christ will do in your life. Watch what He will do in your home. Watch what He will do in our church. And praise God, watch what he will do 
in our community. So I don't know where you are here this morning. If you've never embraced Christ, never become salt, I beg of you today to make that decision. Surrender all and come to Jesus. Or maybe you're here and you've been, you've been compromising and going through the motions. I beg of you to see God has called you for at this time, at this place, at this moment to be salt. Be salt to the glory of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.